0: And I will be in Hebrews chapter 12, if you want to turn in your Bibles, Hebrews 12, wonderful next step for us. Let's pray and we'll get started, Lord, we thank you for our worship time and the, and the, the time we're going to have in your word now. And this has been prayed, we do pray that um, we'd be prepared and ready to receive what you have for us. Um, as the folks that were reading Hebrews at the time, the, it was directly written to them. It's still for us, but for them, they had not yet resisted the bloodshed, and that was really the main point. They hadn't gone as far as they thought they had. And So God, I pray for us tonight, we don't run into near as many problems or near as much persecution as the rest of the world when it comes to our faith. Um, we don't want to diminish what we go through, it, It's it's big to us. Um, but we pray that your, your word would be alive tonight and minister to each one of us where we are uh, with the maturity level that we have, with the amount of persecution that we have, um, and prepare us for what may be coming in the future, that we'd, be, we'd practice now on the little things so that we're prepared for the bigger things, God. So God, give us ears to hear tonight. Bless the kids as they're taught tonight. Bless the teachers that have taken the time to prepare lessons for them and to share with them sometimes difficult passages um, that are, are hard for little ears to hear and uh, have to be so careful how we share. And uh, I just pray that you'd fill every teacher with your Holy Spirit, that they might be able to do exactly what they'd hoped to do uh, by getting it into their hearts and that you uh, do a great work back there. In Jesus' name, amen. It's not easy. Jenny was sharing with me. She goes, oh my goodness, Saul gets killed he gets hung on a wall, his head gets chopped off, this will be great. You know, she said, how, how do we do this? I said, I don't know, it's your problem, not mine. So I, <laughs> so I pray for them, that isn't an easy task to do, and then make a craft out of it. <laughs> you know, wow. So God bless those folks that dive in and do that. I love the first verse of chapter 12. Actually, just the first few words. Therefore we also, everything we've read through chapter 11 wasn't meant for us to find heroes or idols, you know, Um, we do enough of that in this world. It was meant to show us this continues, just like the book of Acts never ends, it never comes to a conclusion, there's never a the end in the final chapter, it just keeps getting written in our lives, even today in our generation. The work of the Holy Spirit in the believers' lives, the work of the Holy Spirit in the church continues all the way today. Still have the same problems they had back then. We think we've come up with new stuff and the church is further away from God than they ever have. Read the book of Acts and look at some of the struggles they had. Some of the things they argued. Read the book of Corinthians and find out what the church was having difficulties with. Gossip. It's nothing new under the sun, you know. But just like that... Book of Acts continues on. The Acts of the Holy Spirit never end until we're home to be with Jesus. Neither does this chapter 11. Chapter 11 continues. I don't know that I call myself an Abraham or an a Moses, but I'm doing what God called me to do, like God called them to do. Every one of us is in that position. Um, at pastors' conferences, it's difficult sometimes to get it through to our collective heads. That we're simply living the life of faith that God called us to. The path that we're on as pastors isn't something unique or different. It's just what he's called us to do. I stand up here on a Wednesday or on a Sunday and do what I'm called to do. But the path could have been any path. I'm only being obedient to what God called me to do by coming up here. Everyone in this room has their own calling. Sometimes it's a Stephen ministry. Sometimes it's a Moses ministry—a different, maybe smaller, lesser version of that. Not so many people following you, but yet still leading a group. You know, it can be as simple as a, a, a one act—you know, a one moment thing. You think about some of the folks in Scripture that were prepared their whole lives biblically for the moment, and the moment was over, and that was it. They kind of, they they fulfilled what God called them to do. It doesn't mean that they didn't keep walking with God and lesser or smaller things didn't happen, but that's what they were prepared for, you know. So the Hebrew writer here, trying to encourage the believing Jews who are watching their friends and family walk away from their faith to continue. The struggles you're having, you believing Jews, is nothing new or nothing more than what has been described to you in chapter 11. These folks all went through the same thing. You're not going through something unique. It's just you're experiencing it for the first time. Everyone in this room, we need to know that. We don't have maybe crosses waiting for us, literally with nails or ropes or whatever they want to hang us on. That may be happening in other parts of the world, but not with us necessarily necessarily. We have different kinds of persecutions that almost cause us to need to be on our toes even more because they're more subtle. You you be a spot a Roman soldier walking down the road with his sword out saying, are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? Well, that's kind of obvious. It's our friends and our family and our co-workers that surprise us with the, oh, wow. I thought we were on the same page. I thought we were, I thought you were coming along in the Lord. I thought maybe today was the day of salvation for you. And Wow. We, in a different direction, and you're maybe caught off guard by that persecution. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. It goes on, that's a bad place to stop, but I'm going to do it anyway. Sometimes that great cloud of witnesses, we kind of feel like maybe uh, we're in an arena down here and all the saints in heaven are, you know, go, you know, go. And I don't know that that's the case. I think we make more of this and I don't, I don't know that heaven is watching us like we think they ought to be or mom's looking down at me or, you know, old daddy is, you know, who died is, is watching me and keeping his watchful eye over me. I don't know that he is. I don't think we have any scriptural basis for that. And there's a reason that I, I point that out. It's like, well, that was a mean thing to say. No, he sends angels to watch over us and he's watching over us, which is a much better watch system than my mother or father who you know barely made it into heaven through Jesus Christ's blood. Like, I'm barely going to make it into heaven through the blood of Jesus Christ. I'd much rather have God's watchdogs than my imagination. I don't know that there's this group watching us. What he's saying is here, we have witnesses. We have talked about several witnesses, witnessing in their lives the work of God in their lives through this chapter 11. We're surrounded by them. We can't, uh, we can't avoid not seeing someone like Moses or Abraham in our minds. You know, as we go to synagogue, as we read the Bible, they're, they're ever present with us. Their, their walk with God, their witness for, for Christ is always around us. We also ought to be having that same walk. This is point. What they did in chapter eleven, all the folks we talked about, they laid aside the weights and the sins that ensnared them, so that they could run and do the things that they did. Since this chapter eleven is continually being written, or it's never ended. I don't know the right way to put this. We're called to that same calling. It's very difficult to run a race. I, I, the new thing, and I don't know how good this is going to be for their joints. I, I, my bet is it's going to be bad. The, the weight vests that people wear, you know, the combat weight vests that people wear, adding 40 pounds, I'm like, that's a lot of extra weight hanging on that lumbar of yours. I don't know that that's going to be a great thing. Feels good now because you can handle it. But there's a lot of 50 and 60 year olds that look at that and say, I ain't putting that thing on. I know exactly what I'll feel like tomorrow. Because it's it's a poor way to train. It's a poor way to, to do that. There's better ways to to pick up your endurance. Well, the weights and sins that we're supposed to shed are, are like that. It's hard to. Nobody would wear that weighted rest in the New York Marathon. It would be kind of dumb. I mean, you can wear it weeks before if you feel like it, but it'd probably be better to shed that. In fact, it's kind of funny to watch the running shorts that these guys wear sometimes, and gals, but... My goodness, you know. And I understand when when the Olympics took place, when they first started, they weren't wearing anything at the time. So, I mean, it's an improvement, I guess, upon those times. But the idea is let's get light. Let's be free, you know. Let's make sure that nothing is hindering our legs from freedom of movement and range of motion, you know. Spiritually speaking we can laden ourselves with such weights and things that encumber what our spiritual agility could be doing in our lives you know we could be moving and shaking a lot better than we do spiritually if we just shed these things that God calls us to get rid of sin is an easy one we know that we're supposed to stop sinning quit sinning don't sin so much you know but there's other things that can encumber or stop us from being I don't know, high speed, low drag, you know. It's our liberties. Liberties. I have liberty in Christ, but is it a weight? Does it ensnare us? Does it entangle us? Does it cause us to run more slowly, be less agile? Because I can. Because I'm, I'm allowed to do that, you know. These things can hinder us. The guys and the gals that are spoken of in chapter 11, they shed a lot of worldliness. They didn't take their lives into account. My pleasure, my comfort, my, uh, my convenience isn't nearly as important as God's call in my life. And so they shed those things. They got rid of those things. The liberties that they could participate in would have hindered them, and so, No. If it's going to come in the way or be in the way of me serving God, it goes. You know, It's a whole other level. See, the law looks for, the old covenant looks for the loopholes, the, the musts, the lists, the things I have to do, the things I can't do. Lay it out for me and I'll try to do my best to stay. It's like going to the swimming pool. You ever, you ever go to a hotel swimming pool? You know you'd have zero fun if you ever read that big plaque they put on inside? You know? I read that one time, it's like, okay, I mean, may as well say, don't swim, enjoy yourself, you know, kind of thing. Common sense, you know. Anyway, the, uh, the things I can, I can do that God allows me to do as a Christian, I have the freedom to do lots of things, we could make our own list of these things, that's, that's the legalist in me coming out again. In a liberty kind of way. Legalism has two ways of working. You know, don't do this, don't do this. And the other legalists can say, I can do this, I can do this, I can do this. It's the same mentality. It's what I can get away with. We're under a different kind of law now in the New Covenant, this law of love. It's a whole different level. It doesn't get. I don't know if easier is the right word. It doesn't get less restrictive. It becomes more restrictive in a sense. For example, a high school boy, age 17, let's say. He has the option of going out for football or not. Let's suppose he's stacked and built for football. He doesn't have to do it. And he could enjoy the liberty of not participating in football and not having to do summer's worth of two-a-days, you know, if anybody knows what those are. Practices twice a day, puking, dehydrating, headaches, heat exhaustion, all the things that come with that wonderful, you know. They can have the liberty to not participate in that sport and not go through any of those things and have a wonderful summer all to themselves but they don't compete. In the fall, they're in the stands. Don't complain about it. You didn't put in the work. You didn't put in the effort. You didn't, you didn't self-sacrifice this summer, so you don't get the touchdown. That's how it works. As Christians, you can sit on the sidelines. God does not make anybody participate or join in or answer the call. You can be saved, go to heaven like everybody else is going to heaven by the blood of Jesus and still not really participate in the kingdom of God. Or, and what he's trying to encourage these Hebrews is, look, continue to walk in faith. Look for God's calling upon your life and answer that call and live this life of faith. Shed those things that so easily ensnare us. So that we can run the race of endurance, endurance, the race that is set before us. So that we can actually compete, and it isn't competition in the sense, but it's a race that we're on. It's a race that God has started in us. In fact, that's the next verse, as He's the author, He's the starter of our faith, and the finisher of our faith. He gave us the opportunity, but it isn't easy. Every one of these saints we read about in chapter 11 went through very hard times, very difficult life experiences. Waiting for God to answer prayers, waiting on God to do this or that, and then when it came time to do this or that, having to go despite everything in them saying, don't do it, it's uncomfortable, you're not made for this, let someone else do it, you know. The argument that Moses had with God is it's epic. I'm not a good speaker. I don't want to do this. I'm 80 years old. Find somebody else. On and on and on, you know. Well, we can always find a way out. God wants us to run the race of endurance. We live in such a time, um, we can't spare anybody in this room. Everybody in this room needs to be participating in this world and in the kingdom of God. We can't spare any of you. There is so much work to be done. There are so many people to reach out to. There are there are people that I will never run into in Maryville, Missouri, and it's a small town. Or in Hopkins, Missouri for that matter. There's people I'll never run into. Only you'll see them. Only you know them. It's your sphere. It's your circle. I encourage you to set those things aside that maybe are more comfortable or maybe they're bringing you your best life and look to see what God's best life is. Verse two, we'll go faster. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has set down, has sat down, at the right hand of the throne of God. How do we do this? What's our motivation? Look to Jesus. And that's not meant to be a platitude, you know. Just look to Jesus. Let's explain. He's the author, the starter, it says, the originator of our faith, and he's also the finisher of our faith. It doesn't mean he's going to do it for us, though. I think mean, that's a mistake to teach it that way. We, we like, you know, a verse that's very similar to this is, um, he has begun a good work and you will be faithful to complete it. It doesn't mean that we don't participate in the completing Doesn't mean that we don't do those things. There's lots of, the the Bible's riddled with people that didn't participate in God's plan in their life, although He had one for them. They didn't participate. We're called to that. So, what's my motivator? Well, looking to eternity. He's going to describe what Jesus went through so that we can know we haven't gone through the things that Jesus has gone through and we're called to go through the things that Jesus has gone through. And so, we look to Jesus as the author, because He's the author and finisher of our faith for the joy that was set before him. How did did Jesus make it through his ministry that he was called to because he simply did what the father called him to do. I I only do the will of my father. I'm not here to do your will, Peter. I'm not here to do your will, John. I'm not here to do anybody's will but my father in heaven's will and that's what I do. And, and, And everybody around him is telling him you need to go this way or you need to go to that city. You need to do that or this or the other thing and and he's like, I'm gonna do what my father tells me to do. And you need John to do what your father's telling you to do, or what I'm telling you to do. And same with you, Peter. You know. So we look to Jesus. He sat down at the right hand of God. That was his goal. That was the end of his race. That was the, f- the finishing of his ministry. He's he ever lives to make intercession for us. Make no mistake about that. But the, the work is complete, it is done. And so he's able to sit down. He's not a high priest up there running around to the altar and praying and doing this and that and the other thing. He's It's all finished. He knew that the joy was, although the shame was horrible, although the ministry was difficult, the joy was, I'm going to see everybody in heaven who believed on me. I'm going to finish that work. And that's what caused me to go through what I go through. Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. If there's another way to have that joy that I'm looking for, Jesus says, let's do it that way. But if not, I'm doing your path, which is the cross. Likewise. Our our coming to Christ and our salvation in Jesus isn't meant to give us our best life ever. In other words... Riches, fame, whatever it is that you seek, power, maybe, authority, I don't know. We do, when we live this life in anticipation of heaven, in anticipation of what Jesus looked for, that's what we look for. When we're in heaven with God, when when we arrive, that's why we live our life the way we live our life. Looking unto Jesus, he's telling the Hebrew people, that are believers in Jesus, look to him. Don't look to the people on your right or don't look to the people on your left. Don't watch those that are walking away. Don't watch those that are compromising. Guys, everybody in this room will have people like that in your lives. Compromisers. And people that won't be there at the finish line like you're going to be at the finish line. That's disappointing. It's hard to watch someone walk away, but... I can't follow them. My love for Christ is far more important to me than my love for them. Flat out. Jenny and I are together and will remain together provided we both seek out Jesus Christ and his will for our lives. My kids and I will have wonderful relationships provided we're all walking with Jesus. When they stop walking with Jesus or if I stop walking with Jesus, there is going to be difficulties and trials fellowship won't be there like it used to be and i will not and i see this with parents i will not compromise my faith for my kids i don't care if they embrace sin and think that i'm a bit bigot so be it i'm madly in love with jesus christ you've joined my family We have to get that settled now before those moments come in our lives and we don't know what to do because I love my kids so much. I guess I'm just going to walk with them and forsake Christ because I love my kids so much. That's just foolish. Your kids can never find their way back then. You're the anchor. You're the one they reach out to. You're the one that they can go to. When they turn around, when they decide their way didn't work out like it, you're maintaining your walk with Jesus. We think that separation is horrible. And to avoid that horrible feeling, we walk with them into sin. The world's doing it right now. The Christian world is doing it. We don't want to lose our youth. Let's just compromise our faith so they'll stay in the church. No, absolutely not. We need to look to Jesus, not to our kids, not to our spouses, not to anybody. We look to Jesus. We follow him. He's the author and finisher of our faith. And then we become the life rafts, the life guards, in a sense, in other people's lives. A lighthouse, a place where people can run to a city that's set on a hill, bright and shining so they know where to go in these dark times. If I walk off that hill and dim my light or put it out, both of us are lost and blind and we need to be that the writer here's saying please don't walk away from Jesus keep him in the forefront keep him your focus it's very difficult to walk away with Jesus walk away from Jesus when you're looking at him seems like a funny thing to say but it's only when we're not looking at Christ that we're able to walk away from him we've got our back to him that's when and when he's out of sight we move away. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne. What a, what a wonderful encouragement for all of us that someday we're going to be there. And I, you know, oh boy, God, come quickly. I can't wait to be in heaven now. And I, I'm with you on that, you know. But we're not there yet. And I can't sit around and coast until I get there. It's time to be despised. It's time to be hated for Christ. Not everybody treated him like that, though. I think that's the important part. He didn't just do it to make everybody mad in the world. He did it because there was a lot of people that got saved by that. A lot of people didn't go to hell because he maintained his course and and stayed true and didn't compromise. You being bold for your faith now more than ever may cause more people to hate you than ever before, and that feels to you like the world is ending, but more people will be truly and sincerely saved by your walk and your witness. And that's so important. That's all that matters. I wrote down here a word that I'm going to use, and I don't know if it's the right way to do it, but I think I'll better do it after verse 3, because I think this is when it hits most. He says, look to Jesus, and so here we go. For consider Him, capital H, Jesus, who endured such hostility from sinners against Himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. So the argument is, oh, it's just its just the hardest ever. You need to look to Jesus. We do, we do. Have you resisted the bloodshed yet? Have you been actually crucified on the cross yet? It's kind of a spanking. It's a pretty rough thing to say to someone who's down. <laughs> My inclination is I see someone being persecuted. I'm like, oh gosh, that's too bad. Oh, I know it's so hard, it's so hard. <laughs> the writer here is going, you're okay, get up, you know. This ain't nothing compared to what Christ went through. Like a good coach, you know. I'm thirsty, coach. We'll run a little more then, you know. I'm watching you. The Word tells us He never gives us more than we can bear. He never does. And although we get pushed to the limits and we're being stretched and we feel like we're going to snap and we look to God saying, I can't do it anymore. He goes, you can't. You can go a little further. The writer here says, you've not resisted the bloodshed yet. Such hostility from sinners against himself. Why? Because a lot of people got saved. Not everybody was hostile. The only people, and I guess this is the struggle that maybe we all need to, maybe we live in deny. you know, we're a, we're, we're, uh, Denying the facts, we're in a, we're in a war. We may wish we weren't in a war. I wish there wasn't war. I hate war. I wish there weren't casualties. I wish, I, but there is a war between good and evil. There is a war between light and dark. There is a war, and we're in it. And the only way you can not feel the effects of the war is if you become a collaborator. Collaborate with the enemy, and you won't feel the effects of the enemy. They don't. They'll beat you down, they'll treat you less than what you should, but at least you're not getting as much persecution as those that are shining brightly. You know? We're called to not be collaborators. We're called to choose a side, and we've enlisted in God's army, and we're here to be light, we're here to fight. And as much as we'd like to not have the war, that doesn't happen until chapter 19 and 20 and 21 of Revelation. And that's when it all ends. But until then. We're supposed to consider him. We're supposed to keep our eyes on Jesus. The one who endured such hostility. And we do that so that we don't become weary and discouraged in our own souls. Because we can. When you look at Jesus and you see what he endured and what he went through. Spit and crowns of thorns and dried blood on his back from the whippings that he took and. The rejection of about everybody in his family except for his mother, you know. Brothers and sisters even thought he was crazy. Everybody in his town, even his disciples at times, you know. His closest, other than the 12, 70 of them, walked away from him, you know. You talk about a church split. Gee whiz. Can you imagine? We're worried about a 50-50 split. Can you imagine that ratio? Twelve stayed, and they're not even sure why they're staying. All they know is, well, you have the words of eternal life. We don't get it either. And the other 70 went, this is hard. I can't understand. And they walked away from him. But not discouraged or not dissuaded from what he needed to do. You've not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. Don't forget this. And here's the quote. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. That's how you know you're his kid. He doesn't let you go. He corrects you. The things that happen in my life are corrective. They may feel punitive, but they're not. They're corrective. I'm meant to change my course, to change my path, to help me to not do that again, you know. And sometimes chastening isn't always corrective. Sometimes chastening is the two a days. I'm stretching you. I can think about the people that have been in my life that have stretched me. <laughs> You'll be so strong. Your wind will be so much better. How tough of a warrior for Christ do you want to be? You know, He chastens those whom he loves. He trains those whom he loves. He teaches those whom he loves. Very important. Verse 7, if you endure chastening, if, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. How come I can't get away with stuff? Well, because your dad's got his eye on you. you. know, We talked about that last time. How come I'm always getting caught? How come, how come they can stay out till 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning? How come I have to be home at 11 or 10? Well, because I love you and their parents don't. You can't say that about their parents. They don't care enough to tell them to get home. Oh, you're just too strict. No, I just know that nothing good ever happens after 10 (laughs) p.m. Only trouble. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not more or much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he for our prophet, that we may be partakers of his holiness. 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 <laughs> holy, holy, holy. That's what they say to as they fly around God's throne. Holy, holy, holy. They're enamored with, they're enthralled with God's holiness. That's what they talk about. They never ever stop doing that. Every time they look at him, like, he's still really super holy. You know, holy, holy, holy. Do you want to be a partaker of God's holiness? Do I? He is chasing us, and that is His goal for our lives. That's our Father's goal, is our holiness. Us being conformed into His image, to be holy like He's holy. He's always stated that from the beginning of the book to the end of the book. I want you to be like me, I want you to be holy because I'm holy. And what I do to you or for you is for that goal. And when I decide that holiness is that's far enough for me, that's when I'm at odds with my father. That's when I have broken fellowship. That's when his goals aren't my goals, and I don't ever live to do the will of my father. I do the will of myself. It's dangerous. God wants us holy. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. There's a lot going on there. Of course, he says to them, I don't expect you to thoroughly enjoy the chastening of God, but remember what it does. When you're trained by it, it brings about a peaceable fruit in your life. Everybody wants peace. Everybody wants that peaceable fruit. We just don't want to go about it the way God wants to go about it is the hard part. What well, comes from that chastening? Why is it painful? It's only painful because it goes against my will. If I was truly wanting to do the Father's will, it wouldn't be painful to be. Well, sure. See, obedience, it's a funny word. <laughs> if you decide to both go to Disneyland or you decide to both go to Kansas City or you decide to both go in a direction, there's no obedience involved. It's only when one doesn't really want to go, but they go anyway. God wants us to be holy. And the only time it's a struggle and the only time it hurts is when we don't want to be. It's not to be like that. He does finish it up with that little caveat at the end. For those who have been trained by it, it brings fruit. For those who haven't been trained by it, it doesn't bring fruit. They go around that mountain again. Over and over again, they go around those things. Why does that person not get it? Why don't they see that that path only leads to whatever, you know? When are they going to learn? When they're trained by it. And when they're trained by it, they'll have that peaceable fruit. They won't have those struggles. They won't have that uh, upheaval in their life that comes from that sinful walk and desire. Verse 12, therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but rather be healed. Now you can teach that in the sense that we're supposed to help each other. But if you look closely, he says, make straight paths for your feet. I've got the hands that are hanging down. I've got the hands that are the knees that are feeble. If I want them to get healed, if I want them to get strengthened... And to function like they're supposed to, I need to make straight paths for myself. Which means we can. Which means I can choose paths that God has ordained for me. I can follow the path that God has me on. I don't have to blaze a trail. God has a path for us. Psalm 119.105. That word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It's meant to show me this is the path. This is the way. Walk in it. That's the straight path. And when I do that, all of a sudden my hands aren't hanging down anymore. My knees aren't susceptible to being tricked knees and going out on me, you know? Falling down all the time in my faith. And I'm healed. Verse 14, pursue peace with all people. Doesn't mean you'll have peace with all people, but that's what we pursue. And holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. It's, he says it's impossible for us to please God without faith. It's also, we need holiness. I think about the relationship that Moses had with God and how special it was very special. In fact, he rebukes some of the nation of Israel who thought they could have that same relationship without doing what Moses did. Moses was faithful in all his household. And he says, and that's why I don't speak to him in dark sayings. I don't speak to Moses cryptically or through prophets like I do to you. I speak to him face to face because he's faithful. Because he wants to be holy. He wants to be in my presence. He wants to be walking with me. No one will see the Lord without that holiness. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. And by this many become defiled, lest there be any fornicator, profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Such an important section of Scripture. There's a difference between being caught and being repentant. Esau didn't like the result of his choice of trading his birthright for a bowl of stew from his brother, you know. And so when it came down to it, he began to weep and cry and and moan, but there was no repentance of what he had done. It was just he, he hated the outcome of what he had done. There's a difference. Repentance causes a change of course in our lives. Sorrow is sorrow. It really means nothing. Sorrow, godly sorrow, leads to repentance. Regular old sorrow because I got caught or busted or because sin caught up with me or the seeds that I planted finally bore fruit in my life. That's just sorrow. It has no value. He wants us to be careful. This is a warning for everybody in Hebrews. You're thinking about walking away. You're thinking about following all these people, going back to Judaism and walking away from the grace that God has given you. It is not a good place to be. You'll end up like Esau. You're trading your birthright in Christ for something temporary, something short-lived. It's a, he compares going back to Judaism as a bowl of food. Compared to your birthright, your inheritance that you have in Christ, why would you sacrifice that for this passing meeting of a physical need, you know, hunger? I want to be accepted. I want to be liked. I'm tired of people looking at me this way. I'm tired of nobody coming to my shop anymore and doing business with me now that I'm a Christian. I'm tired of my friends saying, well, you know, they don't call me anymore because they know where I stand. I can't even walk into a room without him saying, hey, quit judging me. And I didn't even say a word. I'm tired of all that. I just want to be normal like I used to be. And you trade your birthright for a bowl of food. He warns them about that. Christ had to, Jesus had to constantly deal with this. His, His whole life, 33 plus years, 33 and a half years of always being remembered as the guy or thought of as the guy that was born in fornication, had no real dad or born out of wedlock. He was always that kid, an illegitimate kid because that's what the world saw and thought. He's always weird, you know. Even his brothers and sisters thought he was weird. He's a weird kid. wanted to throw him off cliffs. wanted to go hang him on a tree because he healed people. I mean, the world's crazy. The world is crazy for what they hate. He says, don't, don't trade what you have in Christ for that craziness. Verse 18. For you have not come to the mountain. I love this comparison. You have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire And to the blackness and the darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words. So that those who heard it begged that the words should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure what was commanded. And this is the quote. And if so much as a beast touches the mountains, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and, and trembling. Even Moses That's not the mountain we come to. But you have come to the Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God and to the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Behind you, Hebrew believer that wants to go back, is the scary mountain of rejection, of judgment, of fire. Before you, with Christ, is fellowship, is closeness, is peace, is love, is brightness. Why would you want to go back to that other mountain? You've come to a much better mountain. Verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. Capital H, meaning Jesus. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. Whose voice then shook the earth, but now he is saying, yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, what does he mean by that? Indicates the removal of all those things that are being shaken as of things that are made. But the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Let God shake things up. Let him do that and remove all the things that can be destroyed. That can be made rubble. Nothing in my life should be a sacred cow. (laughs) That's the term we use today. It's the wrong term, but that's the best way to describe it. Nothing in my life should be untouchable by God. It should all be available to Him to do with what He wants to do. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, an everlasting kingdom, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. For Metal, for Christians, the fire brings strength and refining in our lives. Consumes everything that is consumable. For the straw, (laughs) for the sinner, it just consumes them utterly and entirely. And it means destruction. For me, being in the presence of God may be uncomfortable at times. It may be a purifying time for me. But I willfully put myself there. I want that. Because I want to be like him. I want to walk better. I want to be better at everything that I do. And what I mean by that, not, not more skilled necessarily, but more holy in everything that I do. I think about, you know, raising Mariah and Bo, kind of our second batch of kids. I hate to consider them batches, but there's a seven-year gap between the first four and the second two, or the last two. And I don't know that we're better parents or more... Uh, well, we are better parents, but only because our walk with Jesus is better. We just understand better. I think we were so afraid with the first four, or I was anyway, of doing the wrong thing or, or whatever. We were just high strung, you know. But as I become and have become more comfortable with the Lord, uh, become more refined and more purged, all these things have been taking place for years and years and years, you know, in my life that I have much more wisdom now, God's wisdom as I'm dealing with this second too, And they're, they're reaping the benefit of a close walk with Jesus. Not, not skills as a parent, but a closer walk with Jesus. If these Hebrews stay with the Lord, if they stay with these uh, moments of being um, chastened by God, they'll be better. We'll be fourth quarter Christians, you know. Right now it's hard. You got your hands on your hips, Hebrews. I understand that. I know you want to quit. I know you want to drop out. I know you want to, you know, walk away from this training and from this difficulty and from these hardships. But I'm telling you, persevere. Go through these things. They're for you, not against you. God is not against you. He's for you. He's bringing about something and he's drawing something out that you didn't even know you had inside of you. He's, play, he's living through you. He's doing amazing things. He's getting rid of all the chaff in your life. You'll be better. Next week we'll conclude in chapter 13. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and your encouragement tonight. You tell us all about these wonderful men and women of faith in chapter 11, only to let us know in chapter 12 that we can be listed among them. And that's exciting to us. It's a lightning bolt to our hearts, to our souls, to know that these weren't exceptions, but these were exceptional people because they walked with you closely. And we can walk with you as close as we want tonight. We can commit our lives as much as we want to commit. You've placed no limits on us being obedient and loving you and following you and being used by you. So, God, tonight we want to commit our lives to you, God, in a a deeper way than we ever have before, even more so, God, that we might walk worthy. Look more like your sons and daughters. Be more useful to you when the time comes, when any situation arises that we'll be the ones you call upon, and that we'll be faithful and trained and ready, folks that have read your word and prayed and rid ourselves of the weights that entangle us so that we can be truly useful to you in this world. God. draw us closer now this week. Help us to see the difference, Lord, between our walk with you and this world. I pray that it becomes strangely dim, that the world becomes more and more unusual to us and weird, and our walk with you and our spiritual relationship with you become more and more normal, God. That's our heart tonight. Bless these folks as they go. Keep them safe in the fog, God. I pray that you'd... Watch out for them and keep them on the road. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need prayer before you go, please come up. Glad to pray with you.